Today is a question box sermon. So thank you so much for submitting your questions. Uh, I'm so sorry I won't get to all of them today. Um, I will reach out to everyone who submitted a question that I don't get to. And we might get to them in another question box sermon. Here is the first question. What is sacred? What makes an object sacred? What makes a space sacred? Can a person be sacred? Can a book? So one time, years ago, a friend was telling me about walking the Camino de Santiago in Spain. And he walked the Camino for weeks, experiencing it as a sacred path. And I thought to myself, I want that experience. And then I thought, why would I need to travel across the ocean to walk a sacred path? Why not go for a walk where I was in Ontario, Canada, and experience that as sacred? So I imagined walking the Bruce Trail, starting in the industrial town of Hamilton, hiking the rolling hills up to the Bruce Peninsula, not ending at the shrine of the saint, like you do on the Camino, but ending on the bank of the Georgian Bay. I thought, if I walked the Bruce Trail every fall with the intention of experiencing it as sacred, eventually I would experience it as sacred. And maybe other people would too. And then the question came up, can I experience the sacred at any place in time? simply by creating that intention. I experienced the sacred here with you on Sunday morning, even as I know that for some of you, the word sacred does not have meaning. It's easy for me to experience a newborn baby as sacred. It's easy for me to experience a piece of chocolate as sacred. <laughs> But it is also easy for me to mindlessly gulp down that piece of chocolate. So what makes something sacred? I would say intention. A mix of individual intention and shared intention. And I'll add that sacred does not imply delicate. In Judaism, the holy book is sacred, yet you wrestle with it. So the sacred can handle you. What is meant by beloved community? I hear the phrase used, but I don't know what it means. The simplest answer is beloved community is, is where when you enter the room, you can just tell that everyone is loved and the community is loved. It can be as simple as that. If someone is struggling looking after their kids, exhausted and alone, it is not a beloved community. And the term goes back to Josiah Royce in the late 1800s, early 1900s. During World War I, he wondered, can we end war and create world community? Royce was not an idealist, 
He recognized that history is full of conflict, and even people acting in the name of love have done a lot of damage. He also recognized that there's an inherent tension in community. There's tension between the individual will and the constraints of the society. So he wasn't an idealist, but he looked at the world and, and he said, we can do better. Let's aim for a society that embodies love. And he called that beloved community. Roy says not to overly rely on political action to improve things. The only policy I see him promoting is social insurance. Um, so if something goes unusually wrong for you, you're not left alone. Um, but that could be anywhere from the federal level down to the local and neighborhood level. Rather than starting with politics, he says we need an attitude change. And he quotes Ralph Waldo Emerson saying that in the name of individualism, many people are living solitary, empty lives. Royce says we need to share life. We need to devote ourselves to enriching the community. So the community is beloved, meaning people love the community actively. And it's not a collectivism that negates the individual, but individuals who enrich society. People will disagree about the details of beloved community. Even people who agree about specific goals will disagree about how to get there. So it is a messy process. And that puts a limit on how close we can get to beloved community. And some people believe that if we aim too high, it's like flying close to the sun and we will get burned. One person says we need to go for it, aim high, aim for heaven on earth. Another person says no, that project is destined to make things worse. So let's aim not for fully loving community, but just for a bit better than we have it today. And these two people argue with each other and get angry. But maybe while they are arguing, they discover that they love each other. And that right there, right then. They've created beloved community. Name one book or author that sparked radical change from a previously held firm belief for you, and tell us why. I wish I could tell you that I read a book that opened my soul, <laughs> tuned me into the world, and made me care about other people. A book that helped me to find meaning in life. But the truth is, I was raised UU, and that was the air that I breathed growing up. My family had our own dysfunctions, but, but soul and meaning and care were abundant. Over the years, I have needed reminders to live the good life, and I've, I've needed lessons on doing it better. Um, but those have been lessons that opened me up, not lessons that contradicted a previously held strong belief. So, so this question is about a radical change from a previously held strong belief. Um, so a book that radically changed my belief about doing better is called Hidden Order, The Economics of Everyday Life. Yes, an economics book. It's by David Friedman. 
My dad trained as an economist and he did not like supply and demand economics because that kind of thinking has a scarcity mindset. It has a focus on the individual and it has a focus on money. And we could probably come up with other reasons as well. Um, but this book uh, took economics to be about making decisions, which you need to do even if you have an abundance mindset, if you care about community, and if you aren't using money. So it opened up interesting ways of thinking for me about everyday decisions. I went from believing that economics needs to be about selfishness to believing that economics can be about understanding and predicting human behavior. Price theory has a lot of limits, putting a price on things, um, but it gets a lot of things right. For example, the book helps me to understand why housing regulations, which are intended to make things better for tenants, sometimes actually make things worse. So it didn't change my mind about everything, but it gave me pause and gave me another way of looking at things. Next question. You use seem to have lots of committees. <laughs> lots of issues we want to address and various involvement in local, national, and worldwide politics and problems. How can one balance life and still be considered accountable in this congregation? In the transition team meeting yesterday, we were talking about volunteerism. Uh, there are two reasons why people volunteer. There are other reasons. Here are two reasons why people volunteer. Duty and call. Duty is when you do something because you should. Like you should take a turn on the board. You should take a turn making coffee. And call is when you're called to do it. You're called to be a greeter, saying hi to people as they come in. You're called to volunteer for Village Without Walls, ensuring that nobody ends up alone. There's not one answer about how to balance call and the duty. I suggest that at some point in your life, you try each of them. Nobody can tell you what your duty is. You have to figure that out for yourself. But at least once in your life, discern what your duty is and do it for at least a year. And probably you've already done that. So for example, maybe supporting a family was your duty or is your duty. And also at some point, make room in your life for call. Listen to that inner drive that tells you what you were made for. Duty can keep a church afloat, but call can make it soar. And there is a, another reason that people volunteer. People volunteer because someone asks them to. So try that at least once as well. Just say yes and see what happens. And there will be times when your capacity to give will be filled up with giving within your own family or giving for yourself, just needing to heal yourself um, or in another area of your life. And that is totally fine. 
you might uh, be from a culture like those boys in the movie Dead Poets Society, where you were told you got to do more, you got to be more. And if that is the case, your work might be to say no. A lot of you use are on the gung-ho side and find a lot of meaning in that. But in the long run, bringing your full self to church is more important than bringing your worn out self. So do what seems right for you. How can men escape traditional models of masculinity? How can they find a model of masculinity that includes vulnerability? What alternate definitions of strength and toughness can they find? I actually grew up in a family where my mom worked outside the home and my dad was a stay-at-home dad. So my family had a mix of mainstream and alternative gender roles. As a young adult, I practiced letting go of gender expectations to find out who I was and who I could be. It's been an ongoing gender journey. And then this fall, a new friend invited me to join a new men's group. And I thought, how interesting. We can explore a healthy masculinity. And we can explore what boundaries have been imposed by notions of masculinity. So we are in the early stages of that. I don't have answers for you today. Um, but you asked about vulnerability. There's vulnerability in the men's group, but I don't think it comes from telling people come and be vulnerable or ex people expecting to be vulnerable. I think it really comes from the invitation. Uh, we wanted to hear you speak, speak what's going on for you. Here's a place where you can tell the truth. Tell it like it is. Back in Toronto, I loved going to baseball games and football games because I could bellow with my full voice. Men often have to make ourselves small. Maybe everyone, everyone does, but I'll say, I'll say, I think men often have to make ourselves small. We can't use our full voice. And in a men's group, you can use your full voice if that's what you need to do. So that's my answer. If you feel like you just want to tell it like it is about here's my experience of being a man uh, in this world, see where that leads you, I recommend trying out joining a men's group. And Mark, I heard you had an idea for bringing together some men. Look forward to hearing more about that. And Dwayne, if you're on Zoom today, expect a phone call from me to, to get me up to speed on what's gone on in the past with men's group. Okay, I will answer two questions together. What kind of spiritual practice might help us cope when we are overwhelmed by the insistent tech demands of modern life? And how do we keep our hearts open when faced with continuous change and conflict in our daily lives or the larger world? So I'll start with coping with insistent tech demands. First of all, try taking a tech Sabbath once a week for as long as you can. A tech Sabbath is when you don't check your phone, you don't turn on your computer. 
Some people do it for a whole day every week. There's someone named Casper Turkile who creates innovative spiritual community online. A lot of his work is online. But every Friday evening, he posts on Twitter, the work is not done, but it is time to stop. I do check email on my day off, um, but only to check if there is a pastoral emergency. And these days I've gotten into a rhythm of waking up at seven o'clock and getting straight to work. But I aim to not check email until 10 or 11. Even though I'm on my computer, I can do deep focused work at the start of every day. I find it refreshing. Um, and I acknowledge that there are days when my deep focused work is catching up on email. Another suggestion is take time throughout the day to switch from clock time to breath time. Clock time is when you're getting things done. Breath time is when things take as long as they take. Even something simple as breathing, just breathe and pause and just allow the next breath to come. It always does. If you're gazing out the window daydreaming, just simply pause and let the next daydream come. Do this especially on your busiest days. So from there, how do we keep our hearts open when there is continuous conflict and change in the world? Well, for a similar answer, take a regular conflict Sabbath, if that is at all possible in your life. So don't check the news. Find an activity that loved ones love to do with you. If there's someone that you often have conflict with, is it possible to say, uh, I think it would help our, our conflict just to be together for a moment? Can we just put down the conflict for a moment? It's not always possible, but sometimes it is. If it isn't possible, you might need someone else to be your go-to person for a conflict Sabbath. Another thing that helps me when I'm thinking about climate change or thinking about the future unknowns of GPT-6 is to remember that life is made up of moments. Sounds cheesy, but literally take a moment to smell a rose. Give your body a healthy gift. Maybe look at the clouds and feel a connection to everyone who's seeing the clouds. Everyone who just needs a moment of renewal and hope. Think of Martin Luther King Jr. taking time on his busiest, most conflicted days. Uh, for him, it was prayer. During difficult times, it is okay to take the time to feel love for the world, love for your neighbor, and love for yourself. It is not irresponsible to take the time to feel that love. And in fact, it might just be what the world needs. So there were more questions. If I didn't get to your question today, I will reach out to you. There were important questions I didn't get to. And I will schedule another question box next year. So let's take a moment to honor the questions that remain unspoken in our hearts.
Now please rise.